and welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm also the guest. Today the tables are being turned. Uh, Johnny Minardi, Noise Creators founder, is interviewing me about, well, my productions, and then as well, uh, the big news, which is that my new book is out. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, I think it's an essential read. It's based on many of the concepts that get discussed, but I think I shed a whole different light than anything we've ever discussed on it. It's called Processing Creativity, the Tools, Practices, and Habits Used to Make Music You're Happy With. So what I do in this book is I discuss why we even like music, what's gone wrong with the way we create music, how to correct it, and then I get into the science and academic research coupled with music about how we can create better. I think there's been so much bad information and false stories that have went around that there's a big need to correct all this. And so I wrote a really thorough but quick read uh, that you can take down in both uh, physical ebook and audiobook form. That's now available for sale. I'm going to promote the hell out of this by telling you to go to processingcreativitybook.com and check it out. And other than that, most of this episode just talks about me producing uh, and uh, the bands I've worked with and my thoughts on all that stuff on, that you've heard a little of if you listen to this podcast a lot, but I go much more into depth about what I actually do in this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what is your chain for recording your voice today? <laughs> um, I'm using an SM7 into a Pendulum Audio Quartet mic pre-compressor EQ thing into an Apogee Symphony, which is not what I always do this podcast with. I'm often usually on a blue... Yeti thing because I have to do it for my office, but today, uh, you know, I, I I have to step up to the plate now that the table is turned. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. You're on the other end now. You got to make it sound fancier than it is. Yes, yes. <laughs> Great. Well, that's awesome. So, can you give everyone listening uh, your background in music and how you got into everything? So, I often make the joke that everybody finds funny that knows me that I uh, wanted to be a cop when I grew up. Wow. And then I heard uh, Appetite for Destruction. 
And, <laughs> and that changed the second It's So Easy was done. Amazing. And then I think I saw the Sweet Child of Mine video and I was like, wow, they're hanging out with all these hot hair metal chicks. And... <laughs> <laughs> I never have guessed it, but I love it. And uh, that kind of changed that. I started playing in bands uh, with like my friends around the neighborhood. It was basically like my best friend, Mike, and I would play in bands together. We'd have to get other people that didn't live by us to recruit from time to time. And we had like everything from like a hair metal group to a grunge group to a rap group. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was, like, funny, because, like, we, while we always, like, were more of, like, punk kids, uh, you know, we kind of liked everything. Like, back then, we would sit around and record on cassettes. I would, like, program a Casio, and he would rap. That was kind of foreboding for what I've just basically done, so I've been doing that since I was 11 or 12, and, uh... Right, so you were always the guy in the band that would take the initiative to be like, I'll figure out how to record it. You just keep yes. playing. Yes. Yeah. So um, we went into the studio. I'm really lucky that I, I, as my joke often goes, I'm a second generation hipster. And um, my dad managed some smaller bands, like one that got like signed to a major label and like he had contacts. And so there was a studio in town and um, we went in, we were terrible. And when it didn't sound like Appetite for Destruction, I was like, this guy sucks at his job. I'm going to learn how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. But and, and looking back, did you just suck? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, like literally <laughs> I came in with like, have you ever seen those drum sets like that don't have bodies? Like they're just the drum head on it. Like that's what no. I had. I mean, you're, you're, you're really lucky. Like, this is the thing is, is I'm like, oh, this looks awesome. And it was like cheap enough that I'm like, yeah, that's my drum set. And then like, you know, we, like crate amps and things like that. And we're like, wow, we're 12 years old and we don't sound like Appetite for Destruction. Let's, uh, I can't understand why this is happening. <laughs> so then you figured, why don't you just record your own band and make it sound like that? Yeah. And so like, uh, you know, that, that Christmas I get a four track and then, uh, I started charging bands a bag of Doritos and some Snapple to record them. Hell yeah. Then after that, I think the, so yeah, the first record I did was my other best friend, Sam's band. And they had me go to a real recording studio and just tell the guy to basically not turn reverb up. Cause he was a hair metal guy and they were a uh -huh. punk band. They were like real crusty punk. So I got a reputation for being the guy who could do that and help the bands do that stuff. So I did that for a couple bands and uh, they came out on seven inches. And then I just right. literally that kept happening. And then somewhere in that same time, I was doing sound at my high school. And the town next door to me is WFMU, which is the largest freeform radio station in America. I think now the only one left. Right. One of the guys, a guy named Stork, comes over to me and uh, he's like, you should do this at WFMU. I'm like, that sounds great. Money. And they're like, no, it's free. And <laughs> <laughs> so I went over there and started doing that. And so in high school, I'm recording like crazy bands like there like every week. Like, you know, it's like the magnetic fields come through. And wow. like, I want to say it was Gaster Del Sol was the day that like my teachers were like, you're either going to get kicked out of school if you don't show up again, or I could go to WFMU. And I was like, ah, I'm probably not going to pass high school anyway. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, so, so like 30 days before uh, the, the high school, I uh, didn't show up. And, oh, wow. Uh, I had gotten to go to prom because my girlfriend told me she'd dump me if I didn't take her to prom. Okay. Yeah, that kind of set me off on the life trajectory that this was all I was going to be able to do. Sure. I went to Institute of Audio Research. 
And then after that, I got a job at Go-Kart Records doing publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing tons of shows at a bunch of different clubs. And then I did like a big New Jersey festival at one point with like, it's so funny because like you look back at the lineup and it's like, you know, to think that there's 1,500 kids at this thing. And now like yeah. you did this lineup, it was like, Converge, Dillinger Escape Plan, Los Crudos, Saves the Day, Kids that Kid Dynamite. I'm probably even missing a ton of them. Um, That's awesome. I- ISIS's first show. So I was doing all that, and then I realized I'm not a good publicist because I <laughs> don't really love talking to people, convincing them to do things they don't want to do all day. Right, right. So I got a job at West West Side Music. My boss at Go Kart uh, gave me a good recommendation. I started working there. And then eventually after that, I got too busy as a producer and had to go independent. And as I went independent, I started working under Steve Evitz. And mm-hmm. then Steve Evitz later brought me to work under Ross Robinson with him. That's crazy. And then I went back to just doing records on my own after like a couple years of doing that. And that's what I've been doing ever since. That's awesome. What was, what was when you went off on your own outside of those producers, what was like the one record that got you to the next level? Huh? You know, it was funny. It was, it was kind of a bad decision Yeah. when I left working for Ross. So we got done with a certain part of a Limp Bizkit record. And I was like, I'm kind of done with this. You know, I realized I like working with bands and this is like, you know, a re- another one of those reoccurring things of this podcast is a lot of us like working with the band that's hungry, not the band that's sure. kind of being assholes and sure. uh, it got, got their things solidified. And <laughs> I came home to work on this band that I was sure was going to be the next big thing. And it was the worst record making experience I've ever had in my life. Wow. One of the kids was the single worst, maybe top three worst human beings I've ever dealt with. <laughs> And I was like, man, maybe I made a bad mistake. And But then after that, you know, it was like I got back into the uh, groove of things and did cool records with good bands again. Like, I think the record right after that I did was like the second Escape Engine record, which I was really mm-hmm. excited about. But the record that gets you the next thing is always like a weird one because they're like, oh, they got into it from something totally stupid. Like, it'd be like that thing of like, so I had this big philosophy and it's kind of the thing that I tell every young producers i would turn and find the band that everybody's like they work hard but they suck and that's but they only get all the shows because they work so hard i'm like yeah i'll make them not suck by working hard with them and showing them how to turn themselves into a great band by putting in the time in the practice space right that's a great idea they already have that other ingredient of being hard working and being in the scene and I did that so many times that, you know, then that's how I started to get booked to the point that it was like nine month out booking all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it did take a lot of extra work, but like I was, I've always been one of those people that's willing to put in free time afterwards to making music. So it was just like that thing. It's like, yeah, instead of a day off, I would go over to a practice space and try to teach a drummer how to flam the drum properly or not right. um, hit his kick drum about 30 milliseconds after the crash symbol every time sure and uh yeah that kind of worked and it just kept getting me good recommendations sure that's awesome that's a great way to do it can you tell us uh about your studio and what makes it unique yes 
So my studio is seven blocks outside of Manhattan in Union City, New Jersey. And I guess like what really makes it unique is so I own it with Mike Ottinger, who co-produces 99.9% of the records I do with Mm -hmm. me. And we do like this two-room approach where I do the drums with the band. Well, first we both work on the songs with the band, then I do the drums and he edits them that he does all the guitar, bass, and keyboards while I do vocals and mix in the other room. So bands get to do about twice the amount of work that they normally would in a day. Right. Doing it that way. I guess the only other thing that we really do is like we really... We made our studio really modular so that we could do a lot of different sounds in the live rooms. We have all these movable walls that make different sounds and we could make it like really dead or really live and it's, it's uh an interesting thing i mean we've been doing uh this process now for like 10 years and it's like it's one of those things it's like oh well this really works easy now so now we can yeah. concentrate on doing these like ridiculous things like moving walls around in a studio that's crazy that's awesome what uh what's the coolest piece of gear you guys got over there I guess right now I'm really upset. We got just got those Steve Albini microphones, uh-huh. and we've been experimenting with those on everything because they sound so much different than any other mic yet. They're and they're like you know the same idea. It's not like it's any like breakthrough technology, but then you're like, oh, but this is doing something that no other microphone's doing. So sure, I think that's what I'm uh, obsessed with right now. That's awesome. Um, do you play any instruments yourself? Obviously, you were in bands back in yeah, the day. I can play one-handed keyboard in 2017. Um, okay. <laughs> but uh, in past bands, like when I was in punk bands, I was always the drummer. And then I had a band, I guess it was like after college and during college, um, that I played keyboard and sampler in. Um, we were like okay. kind of like a refused thing right as refused started. Like that record came out. We're like, fuck, they're doing what we <laughs> want to do. Damn yeah. it, man. Like we wanted yeah. to be the dance screamo band. Yeah. And uh, they did it a lot better than us. Yeah, I, I mean, I was the technological guy yet again on, on that. Sure. So that. That's still what I guess I am is that I, I can't, I know one chord on guitar. Mm-hmm. I can play bass to show an idea, and I can barely play drums anymore because it, uh, my high school band just was like, we should play together again. I'm like, it would take me 100 hours to ever learn those songs again. I'm so bad now. That's crazy, yeah. Makes sense, though. Yeah. How involved in the songwriting do you get? Are you the John Feldman or Steve Albini side of your sliding scale? I am normally the middle, like a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but I've been kind of like on this thing of, so a lot of what the new book I wrote is about is that you have to express your authentic emotions. And like, this is one of the things like, as I'm sure you know, since you've worked at labels that did a lot of co-writes, like it's always funny, like when the co-writes not working. And it's like making things worse. And I think one of the things that people don't get is since music is all about an emotional communication, there's this thing like that you have to stay out of the way of like the emotion being done or else it gets a little generic and less resonant to people. And so we get about 25% of the people that really want us to get involved in songwriting. But my big thing is, is like, we have to figure out how to make the band do the work while not them not feeling like we're just copying responsibility to not do the work because right. what it really matters is is the person authentically expressing themselves and making a connection with a listener so with that said too i really like pop music so i like writing things and sure. coupling that with an emotion i've been getting into that 
a lot more recently. I kind of want to get into that even more in the next year, but uh, most of the time it's going to be that standard uh, middle middle ground. Sure. <clears throat> cool. Well, that makes sense. Um, touching off that too, what do you bring to records most often? I think... I'm really good at looking at what somebody's slacking on and not being afraid to tell them that they're slacking on this and they need to look at it. I'm a good lookout for seeing that this person's only thinking about song form and I'm like, dude, you got to think about things aside from just the structures of the songs or just the mm-hmm. core, core of the song. Like you know, there's this whole thing called the melody. Maybe um, I know you hate writing lyrics down, but we're going to have to do like, I, you know, I, I think like really at the end of the day is like, I'm very unafraid to tell somebody that they're not keeping their eye on the thing that matters. Sure. That's awesome. What, uh, what's a common mistake that you see bands making before they come into the studio with you? I think most bands have not developed intent and what i mean by intent is like they've written five songs and those are the five songs but they haven't thought about what how it goes together whether i know like really the biggest thing i see these days is like there's a set of lyrics and there's a so uh, there's music and i'm like why is that lyric with this song they don't feel the same emotionally Right. And that consideration, you know, it's like this funny thing uh, that's been a discussion on this podcast uh, and like I have with a lot of friends is like it seems like bands are more prepared these days like that they were 10 years ago. Like they all know how to do a demo. They all know how to re- they should record to a click track like they are all better prepared in that respect. But they're getting worse prepared in things like that of just like right. knowing that they should really be thinking about every little detail in that like does this match with the emotion should we care about how each song flows into each other on a record and that's like what all the great bands i've worked with have done and like i think really at the end of the day is like a lot of people are hoping that they're gonna step into a great record like dog shit on the street instead of (laughs) you know planning to walk the right way into that great record sure well that's interesting what uh, on the flip side of that what do you think is something smart that you see bands doing during making the record so i guess the other big thing i see people miss is reacting so so many bands we work with come in and they've demoed their song they have how they play it in practice we get through the parts and then when we do the playback of like you know there's always that playback of like okay everything's done right they're just like, oh, well, we're done. Like, you know, the uh, board game has been completed. The game is won. And it's like, right. they don't react and think like, oh, because, you know, I have a big thing in the, the new book about inspiration as the picture gets clear. Like, you know, a lot of people, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this as like, uh, people get really angry when you're far along in the process and somebody notices a flaw with the song. Sure. But the biggest thing is, is that as the song gets clearer and clearer, it's hard to know. Like a demo is like, a, you know, a really rough, blurry picture. And then right. when you get a rough mix of a song, it's like you're standing five to ten feet away from it in the picture in an art gallery. And then when you get a mix, it's like you're standing at the optimal view of how to right. see that picture. And you can't help but notice like little bad flaws in there. Sure. And so many people, one, just go, it's done. I don't want to deal with it anymore. Oh, my God. I'm so tired as fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> and then two, on the other side, is then people get mad when somebody notices it. Like, you know, the perfect example is like, you know, like, we'll have that thing of like, somebody's like, the chorus doesn't kick in as much as it should. And the other band member, usually the person who's charged with making that chorus kick in, be it the singer or the guitarist who is supposed to voice right. the chords properly, gets immediately mad and shuts it down. Yeah. 
Yep. That stuff is toxic. Right. I try to really get people in the mode that they should be reacting and thinking about how we get this emotion to be stronger and not to just be on, we filled in the coloring book and there's yes. all the colors are there. Yeah. I think that that's, it, it, that's, it's just like, a, that's like the same thing we were just saying in the last question. It's like that. I feel like is on the rise, but that should be on the diminish. Sure. Got it. That makes sense. And you kind of touched on this, but what happens when you and a band disagree, or I guess what you touched on is when a band, when two band members disagree. <laughs> yes. When a band dis- and I disagree, uh, I now have this thing. And I kind of yeah. learned this from asking this question to all the producers. I keep thinking about this as like, right. so I have pushback number one, where I'm going to go, I think this is a really bad idea. Then I'm going to encourage us to listen to both ways. Because a lot of the time what I've realized too is when we disagree about something, it's often in my hands that I can make them both versions and then we can emotionally react to what sure. thing it is. And yes, that sometimes means I go home 15 minutes later and my favorite restaurant closes before I get <laughs> home or whatever. But like, it's worth it in the end. But then I have the thing of that. I will ask them to try to judge this from an emotional place because I think sometimes people are using their egos and judging right. from a place where they're trying to protect their own ideas. And if that doesn't happen, then I'm done and it's their mistake to make. I'm sure somebody's going to be listening to this and go, no, he definitely bugged me three or four times. There's there's definitely been a few times I've bugged somebody about something that I think is a really bad mistake three or four times. Like I literally just saying this, I'm like picturing two people in my mind, but I, you know, it's always the band's decision to make, but yes, I may try to keep pushing the issue that I don't think they're judging emotionally. I think they're judging by a silly concept sometimes. Sure. Understood. And do you use any amp simulators or reamping in your role? On a record I've produced, there's never been an amp simulator on a guitar, Mm -hmm. but there has been on uh, vocals. But with that said, we use it for all the scratch tracks. I know they're getting good enough now from doing this podcast and trying what people have told me. It's just still not been something. I mean, we also have so many amps that it's kind of like, why bother? Right. I think this question will be answered differently if you ask me this time next year. But right now, (laughs) the answer is no. Okay, we'll redo this in a year then. Just that question. (laughs) Do sampled or MIDI drums have a role in the production? I do do, I mean depending on the genre it's like that funny thing of i think 50 percent of the mixes i do there's no samples and then maybe like 30 percent there's no samples and then 70 percent it's like yeah i will use i've actually been really liking uh get good drums from noise careers producers nolly and misha i really like steven slate drums i use strike from digitizide for some things i mix so many songs that aren't recorded very well and then even in my own stuff it's like that thing of like sometimes just adding that in there it really is a the right color yep interesting and do you have any favorite soft synths uh i do i use i bought the pack from air a lot of people don't who get pro tools that's just like it comes with a bunch of air synths but they have an expansion thing where you can buy a whole bunch of other synths for them and those are all what i use the most there's something about how hi-fi those synths are that really uh sounds right to me sure interesting and i know you kind of started with mastering on west west side stuff but do you master your own records I do in that a lot of people don't have the budget. And then sometimes, right. I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm working on a record right now with this band, uh, The Color Nothing. And, like, it's, like, one of those things, like, they've mastered all their records. We, I usually go to Alan Douches. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I try some other people. So I think some people do great work. Like I know we just sent one to Chris Crummett on a record I just worked with on. There's a lot of people I think do great work, but there's sometimes I'm also like, you know what? We nailed this. Like, and so I like, guess yeah. color nothing record. We're just like, yeah, well, that's what we're going for. There's, and like, I've come to learn that sometimes like when you nail what you're going for, you send it mm-hmm. to somebody else, you just get mad. You're like, no, they're not doing it. Cause any change isn't right. Right. And it, like, we got it right. I know. I will say that's the rarer thing. The more majority of the time that I master my own records is they're just like, we're out of money. Right. <laughs> but it is, a, it is a nice asset for you to be able to do. I mean, cause you do yep. so many other records that you don't do as well yes. that you don't produce. So it is killers when a band can come to you and be like, Hey, we're out of money. Cause sometimes you go to a producer and say that and they go, well, shit, I don't really master records. I guess I could try it. But like, yes. you know, you, you do, you know, specialize in that as well. So that's cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I do the math at the end of every year, and I mastered five times as many songs as I mixed or produced last year. Oh, so. that's crazy! So, in all reality, I'm if we did it metrically, I'm more of a mastering engineer than I'm a secondly a mixing engineer. Got and it. I'm a producer, but uh, it it is something. But yeah, I mean, at the same time, you know, like it's the funny thing is that sometimes I have to call Mike over if like it's like a mix I've been going on and the band's like we're out of money. I'm like, can you just like see if there's any knobs you can turn that's going to make this? Because yeah. I've lost my perspective. Because like, if, yeah. you know, like I there was a song I mixed for. I, I'm so horrified to say this, but we mixed the song for 70 hours uh, last oh year. Oh my gosh! And you know, it was a really <laughs> complex song, like really, really, like you know, 128 tracks. But it's like, yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, we're using your master too because we have to have it out tomorrow. And it's like, oh Christ. <laughs> Right. No, that makes sense. But that's, that's insane. So, but again, I mean, I think it's a good, a good thing. Like you said, if you do five times more mastering and bands need that from you, that makes so much sense for you to master your own records. Totally. So what is something that you believe that everyone else thinks you're crazy to believe? I don't believe in control room acoustics being as big a deal as people say. And this is becoming less of a crazy thing for me to to say as the years go on. Um, You see so many people working in such terrible control rooms, making the best sounding records. Alan Douchess always said that the most important thing as a producer is your relationship with uh, your monitors, that you know your monitors. Sure. So I really believe the thing you're supposed that you do, and you know personally, like everybody's ears is different, so it's hard to diagnose. Like it's the same mm-hmm. thing as like health stuff. It's like one person has a different reaction, but for me, when I used to freelance, I'd be traveling around to all these studios because I didn't have my own studio for a long time, so I'd have to work mm-hmm. in others. If I just went into a really dead smaller control room that has tons of carpet on the walls. I could usually get beat pretty dead on if I have my monitors in there. Whereas mm-hmm. if it's a really live room and there's stuff bouncing around, it's like I get everything wrong. So my control rooms are just literally, I have thick fabric all over every single wall. There's nothing that's reflective. And to me, that really does the thing. And then I tell this to some of my friends and they literally think I've, um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I've turned into Jesse Pinkman instead of Jesse Cannon. I'm hitting the best fight a little, little too hard this month. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, you touched on how long you mixed that one song last year, but how long do you generally like to work on a song? If we have a full length record to do, I love about five hours to work on the song before we start recording it. And then I need about a day and a half to, uh, do it after that. If we're doing a full length to like really consider it and get it right. With that said, you know, we do a lot of pop punk and like simpler stuff and punk right. and a lot of time uh, a day of song works really, really well for some of the more simpler stuff we do. Got it. 
And what's some good lessons you've learned from other producers? You've obviously mentioned Evitz and Ross, and those dudes have made insane records. So I'm sure you've taken a lot from them. Yeah, uh, those two, and then Alan Douches, I think all have mm-hmm. lessons. Well, you kind of mentioned Alan, so that Alan also has a really good uh, outlook on his famous saying that I think I've quoted in both my books is uh, pick a format and get to work. Sure. And he's just very on this thing that like what matters is your proficiency more than you having the right tool at the time. And like you always see that whether it's guitars or whatever, it's like people will pick up any guitar. They still sound good. Like, right. you know. I mean, I can remember being in a session with Zach Wilde, and I'm like, okay, well, he brought, didn't bring anything, and he picked up any guitar and just did his thing and played the solo, and it was like, it sounded exactly like Zach Wilde, even though it was none That's of his crazy. ear, because it's like, Zach Wilde sounds like Zach Wilde. Sure. And yeah, like, there was a year uh, when the financial crisis hit in 09, New York City studios got really bad. Like, everybody I'd be out with was, like, crying in their beer. And yeah. uh, I did not buy a single piece of equipment that year. Right. I was like, I'm going to get good with the equipment I have and focus on that. And that was the year I got the best. So I did that. Evitz is like a funny thing because like the thing you learn from Evitz too is like everything he does only works for him. Mm-hmm. You can't imitate. You can't do the thing. Like, you know, Evans could, I, I always joke with him because he's like, should I do this sort of recording class? I'm like, yeah, you should do it because no one can imitate what you do because it's all intuition. And he's like the embodiment proof of that. Like, it's his reaction to everything. Right. That makes him who he is, not anything that he does. Okay. And so I think that that's always with the thing. It's that. And then, you know, with the big thing Evitz taught me was to get better performances from somebody. Like, I worked so hard getting amps to be right. And he worked so hard getting people's hands to do the right things. Mm-hmm. And I really, I've stolen that from, from him and taken that. Russ Robinson is all about emotion. He, you know, so much of this new book is about that emotion is the only thing that matters in music because that's all we connect right. with. And, uh, right. Ross will do the craziest things to get the emotion out of people. Like everybody knows the stories of like taking Jonathan Davis to confront yeah. his father and thro- thro- throwing things at Daryl from Glassjaw. And mm. Ross really taught me that sometimes you got to take people out of whatever headspace they're in. Like, you know, it's like really funny. It's like when a lot of people see Ross throwing something at a guitarist, they think like it's like, oh, he's having fun. But really, what he's getting them to do is to stop being so perfect and precious with things and to go into their flow state and to just do their kind of autopilot of emotion instead of some weird thing like where they're like i'm gonna pick precisely this guitar solo so it's absolutely perfectly articulated because that's it's fucking boring right no that makes sense and i've heard so many of those old stories and seen them in those old movies and videos and stuff and it sounds like one of the most intense processes I've met so many people in my life, and he is one of the most unique human beings that has more understanding of why he's doing something. And, like, the funny thing about Ross, too, is, is like, he's both the best communicator and the worst communicator in some ways, is that, like, you could really easily mistake that it's all an accident until you get it, that uh, he is totally intentional is considered everything more than most people have considered it but it he's also like a total beavis so like <laughs> he's like laughing making jokes and like chuckling like he dies laughing like every hour of the hour so you're just like sometimes like is this just an accident and then you yeah. realize it's not <laughs> right that's incredible 
and uh, tell us some of the best moments you've had in the studio. I, I guess, like, the, you know, it's, like, funny, like, when I ask this one to people, I'm always, like, it feels weird because, like, so many people are, like, oh, I don't even know, like, what, what how, how to do it. But, like, I guess the la- the there was one moment I always go back to uh, when Man Overboard and I were making real talk and... Zach, Nick, and I were up after the hours. We're having like a drink, and they're having a smoke because that's what they do. And uh, we're putting together the order and which songs because we, ha- you know, like we did the thing that I like to do with every full length is that we have way more songs that we're going to do with the full length to figure out how the emotion fits and like what's going to go on with that. And we're like we were putting together the songs that would go on the record, and like we realized like. You know, like, it was very funny on that record is, like, Montrose wasn't going to be on that record, which ended up being the single, because that had already come out on an EP. And we just realized, like, no, you know what? Montrose is on this record, and that's the right decision. And, you know, if anything, that was, like, a decision that really made uh, that record be what it is. Crazy. Yeah. you, You know, the fire of, like, when you have to make hard decisions, but they're the right decisions, it's so funny because, like, I'm really obsessed with the idea of that, like, you have to look at the hardest decision you would have to do in your life. That's mm-hmm. often going to be the path that you have to take. Like, like there's even so many times, like, you and I are uh, making a decision for noise creators. Like, yeah. we're working on this project right now. Like, we're about to launch something new. And it's like, wow, it's going to be so much harder to do it that way. But that's the right decision. Sure. And, yeah, and it's, it's taking longer, but it's making it way more efficient when it actually comes through. Yeah, and, like... I that record like the thing with Montrose is like okay well we have an old version of Montrose I guess but we don't have any of it recorded right now and mm-hmm. we're getting near the end of time it's like you know oftentimes that's the thing but the other thing people forget is like once you make that decision the f- wind in your sails is like TEDx and yeah. it just it kicks in and you're like all right we got the right decision we've con- accepted this and now you have like this extra spring in your step and it's important to remember that. Yep. I love that. And obviously that's a pivotal record. So that makes total sense. And, uh, on the flip side of that, what are some of the worst moments you've had in the studio? And what have you learned from those? It, it, it's always funny. Cause I think the one for everybody is like when you lose the data, but I think actually like some of the worst moments I've had have really been, um, when you, have expectations and they get messed with because somebody has decided to sabotage the process for their ego. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did a record years ago where a celebrity producer, let's call him uh, from a big band came in and he was, I mean, it's been established by anybody who knows him. He's a sociopath and uh, he did everything he could under my, and I fell for it. Like I let my temper go. I was so stressed because like, a sociopath is three steps ahead of you in manipulating you. And the worst thing was realizing like, and it was also the best thing is now I never have done it ever since it's been so many years, but like mm-hmm. people are going to try to play you and provoke you to do the wrong thing, to like lose your temper, to do things. And ever since then, like I never lose my temper. Like we have a joke, like in the studios that like when I'm really bad at somebody, and they're doing something repeatedly that I've asked right. them that I can't do. I go, I turn to them. I say, pretend I'm yelling at you right now. Mm-hmm. And cause I don't want to yell at anybody. I don't want to, you know, there's no need for me to yell at another adult, but like learning to no longer fall for the tricks that make me lose my temper and do dumb things was 
the it was the worst. Like it really like I'd go home at night like why did I fall for that and like wouldn't sleep the whole night and then I'm at a even more short fuse because I didn't sleep the whole night and like falling for those tricks was the worst and then getting past that was the best. Right, which is amazing, but you got to go through them to get there. Yes, sadly. <laughs> gotta, gotta, so, my, my parents yeah. always say you have to make your own mistakes. We can't make them for you. And I'm like, that's uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. The, it's, it's the really best way to learn, but it yeah. sucks. Yes. So what's a perfect record in your eyes and what makes that record perfect? You know, is really funny because uh, we always, you know, the, uh, as the joke goes on this podcast, the most popular record to mention is Clarity. And right. uh, I listened to the Washed Up Ebo episode with Mark Trombito last night on my way home from work. And mm-hmm. I p- just had that urge to put on Clarity this morning. I'm like, that's right. This is still what I'm aiming for is like innovative good ideas that still mix with the emotion the song's trying to do. Like there's so many like little things like so many bands, especially today, are like looking to push technology to for the sake of originality or doing something cool and new, but that they mm-hmm. don't make their songs better because it's just like it's obvious poise to use technology and like cool effects that don't go with the emotion of the song. Everything they do that's like a weird technological thing just makes the song even better and more sure. emotional on that record. Like the sub hits on. It's either 10 or just watch the fireworks or something like that. Like one of the layers, there's like a sub hit instead of a bass drum hit on one, which probably was even the thing of like, they realized they should have put another bass drum hit there or something. Mm -hmm. And then they're making up for it. Everything like the lucky Denver mint drums and the sweetness drums of the next record. To me, the perfection uh, is always when you can find new things to do that enhance the emotion of a record. Right. It's crazy how many people reference that record every time you talk about production as well. Yeah. It's also just the thing is it's like, it's still one of those records that, like I, I I have not heard anybody ever like I I actually think this is like a a mark of uh, Mark Trebino's greatness is that there's two records that while everybody imitates no one ever gets the sound of it even near it which is that and then Jawbreaker uh, I'm sorry Drive Like Jehu Yang Crime mm-hmm. no one ever 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 like I've never heard a band that sounds like the guitars on Yang Crime and right. I've heard a million bands play guitars that try to do that and it's just like it's nothing near it. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imitate that record, but pretty flawless. So what are uh, five of your favorite records, and how did they shape your musical growth? So the first one was Appetite for Sel- for Destruction. I keep wanting yeah. to say Appetite for Self-Destruction because it's that really good book that also shaped <laughs> me. It's the best book right. of the music business ever. So after that, the one that changed me was Nevermind, which also, like, at that same time, like, it was Nevermind, Jawbreaker, and... Archers of Loaf, Icky Metal were all like, that was like kind of the thing that was like, okay, hair metal's really dumb. I'm Mm -hmm. a moody teenager. This is, this is more (laughs) my speed. And then after that, there is a promise ring. Texas is the reason split seven inch that got me, that changed me from being the punk guy to the emo guy. Oh, Um, going deep. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like, you know, I think that was the other thing is, is like what that got me from doing was just listening to like, I always listened to the stupidest music possible. It's just like, okay, here's something that's like raw power, like the sex pistols and like just three chords to, oh, well, these people have intricacies in their music and things like that. So then I guess the the next thing uh, is yet again, another, like one of those multiple things was, uh, 
Atari T Day Dry at Berlin Berlin Burn mm-hmm. with the refused Shape of Punk to Cub record, which was just right. basically like, here's the power of punk, but you could do this with electronic music. Uh, right. So I had gone out and bought a lot of synthesizers, a sampler, things like that. I was also listening to a lot of Public Enemy, even though that wasn't new at the time. Then after that, I went through like the phase I like to always uh, call the uh, when you discover like, oh, I can like mainstream music. Oh, I can like <laughs> the classic songwriters. Uh, oh, I yes. heard uh, Elvis Costello. Is it last year's? Whatever is the first Elvis Costello record with all mm-hmm. the hits on it. This year's uh, model. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the one. So. That was like, that got me that like Elliot Smith, either or Radiohead mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Like once I heard that, I was like, okay, I'm one of those people who could listen to records that are like, I literally was like that kid that like for years of my life, if it was on a major label, I refused to buy it. I would dub a cassette, but I would not give the major label my money because I was too fucking punk. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Which is hilarious. Not at all. I listened to his, da- his dance music on major labels, but uh, right, right. <laughs> um, That's funny. That's too punk right there there and then you know it's like funny so then i had like this like phase where i was like you know i was going to dance clubs and i was listening to more indie rock and then everybody always thinks like oh he's a fucking hipster he listens to tons of indie rock it's like literally for the last 16 years of my life i've listened to no indie rock until like last year i got way back into just like the emo pop punk thing again and i think really what brought me back to that was like that Finch what is to burn, tell all your friends era mm-hmm. thing was just like, was all, oh, that starting line, uh, say it like you mean it. And a lot of that was too, is like, I was so into recording at the time. And I was recording all these indie bands who were searching for that strokes thing. And they were like, everybody would turn to me, they go, make my record sound terrible. And I'm like, this yeah. is boring. Like, I didn't get into this for this. And I, then I heard like people pushing production for like you know i heard mark trombino's doing this finch record mm-hmm. the starting line record in pro tools i'm like i i, I want to do records that sound this yeah. cool that so it really got me interested in the scene again and uh i think you know then after that i was listening to all the things i've ever listened to probably except mostly indie rock right it got me way back more into like i'm going to be in the uh pop punk scene i'm gonna listen to records that try to sound good not records that say well the strokes uh sag through a guitar amp why don't we do even shittier than that yeah that's crazy well those those are pretty monumental records especially with you listening to trombino last night and all that yeah. stuff that seems to come full circle yes yes and who are your three favorite producers so i i have to always go back jerry Finn is like the guiding light sure um, like at one point I had made an audio playlist that certain musician who will go rename named unknown erased on my audio when I let them mm-hmm. use it. Uh, I'd made a, a audio playlist of every song Jerry Finn had ever worked on at one point. He just always got songs better than everybody. Mm-hmm. Dave Fridman, I think is the most inventive ear candy producer that like he can make a record sound interesting while still keeping sight that there's a song there. Sure. I think my tie would be is Steve Evans and Ross Ross. Like, you know, the big thing for me was like both of uh, them were always my two favorite producers, and I put myself myself near them so that I would get right. to, to work with them. And, yeah. uh, you know, like Evans doing those Lifetime records, like those were my favorite records growing up. And then, yeah. like, 
the greatest moment of my life was like getting to work with <laughs> Lifetime uh, when they got back together. That's right. Through, and like that was the biggest thing to me. And it's just like also the the thing that they both did is I think they both found new ways to take the emotion up a bar in music. And when you're young, you need that. Yeah. And uh, I think like when you get old, you can just be like, oh, all right, classic songs. I'm into this. I feel this emotionally. But you're young. You really need those people who figure out a new way to make something sound next level yeah no and those guys definitely continuously do it and still are doing it yes it's crazy so what uh what's your favorite record in the last couple years and what inspires you about it it's probably the two 1975 records are Mm -hmm. i mean anybody who's heard this uh podcast probably knows that uh that 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 is just eternally what i listen to because i think it's the same thing i've kind of been talking about is that that's innovation with insane level songwriting sure yeah. It's also just like, you know, like I think for producers a lot of time, uh, we're all trying to dissect what it is that makes something great. That's what our, a lot of our job is, is to help bands figure out how to get their results they want and who they've admired. And I can never figure out what the hell they're doing. Yeah. I, it's a wild one. You can't, you can't dispute those records. That was cool shit. So tell us about your book and anything else you're working on lately. My book is about the creative process of music and what I think people have missed along the way and a lot of collecting the wisdom of people that I think comes out in two sparse ways. So I like to say it's like a book you can read in eight hours that will show you everything you need to know about the creative process. It will fill in every loop you have as well as expose you to a lot of ideas. I read 200 some odd books thousands of hours of YouTube's interviews with people. I read way too many scientific studies and then academic research papers, all the college textbooks on creativity. And I tried to figure out how to square that with like what music's about. Cause like so much of the advice of creativity goes for like business and other things. And it, a lot of that stuff doesn't work. Like, you know, the customer is always right. Does not work in music. It's right. exactly the opposite is the customer is often way fucking wrong about what you should do. <laughs> and that's come runs very contrary to what a lot of people do. So, uh, yeah, I spent the last four years doing that. I have a record I worked really long and hard on with a band called radiator King last year. That is the singles are trickling out now. Cool. And I'm going to turn to my calendar to remember what I do because I can never remember what the hell I... <laughs> What's coming? I, what I do. Oh, starting a record with a really great band called Save Face. Uh, working on that with Jay Zubricki, right. who I think is one of the best producers in the game, who's also on uh, Noise Creators. That's right. And what else? I mastered a really awesome record for a band called Water Me Down. Uh, that Jay, right. Jay worked on, as well as Seth Henderson and Will Pugh. Oh, and I just finished mixing a record for a band called Ascending from Ashes that I had done a record with before that I think is one of the better, more interesting and unique metal bands in the game. Uh, they have an interesting set of influences that still is really, really poppy, yet really challenging that I really yeah. uh, am looking forward to people hearing that record. That's right. And Chris Crummett's mastering that right yeah, now. Yep. Yep. I'm very excited to hear that. If 
If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 